Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. It's been a few weeks um, because of the play last week. Because uh, I was in the hospital, or the end result of that, when Dan taught. Um, so anyway, we're in Hebrews chapter thirteen. We're going to look at two verses. They're separated tonight, uh, seven and seventeen, as we wind down our study in Hebrews. And uh, this has to do with, with leadership. And it's separated within the text. I put it together, though, because it's both dealing with uh, leaders and uh, a challenge to each of us. So let me just read what I have put here uh, initially. It is generally recognized that verse 7 of Hebrews 13 is referring to past leaders, those who have already died, Hebrews 13, verse 17, though, and verse 24, for that matter, uh, refers to current leaders. So one is talking about past leaders, the first verse. Verse 7, uh, verse 17, talking about current leaders. Now, Stephen J. Cole uh, captures the intent of these, and I think very well in the flow of Hebrews, because you know, we, we, we look through Hebrews and, and Jesus is better than angels and Moses and uh, the priesthood and the high priest and, and the new covenant's better than the old covenant and so on uh, and so much better. And then there are the five warning. <coughs> um, why don't you bring me a bottle of water? I, I have a feeling I'm going to need that before the evening's over. Um, the five warning passages and Hebrews, thank you, Hebrews is... Uh, addressed to Hebrews, and there are two groups of Hebrews in view. One are those who possess the Lord, truly saved, possessing believers, uh, but then there are those who are professing believers. They're not saved, and there's those five warning passages to them, encouraging them, don't go back to Judaism, don't go back to the things of Mosaism and the mixture of Judaism in it. Uh, but come on to the Messiah, who is so much better than um, all these other things. So you have these warning passages, and <clears throat> in chapter 13, it gets very practical, very practical. Cole, I think he captures very well the intent of these verses and the following in the context of this book, and this is what he said. The author was concerned that his readers would be carried away by varied and strange teachings, verse 9 of Hebrews 13, including returning to Judaism. So he calls them to remember the godly teachers who had spoken the word of God to them, verse 7. Even though these men had now died, 
Jesus Christ, whom they preached, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's verse 8. We'll be looking at that, Lord willing, next week. His grace, verse 9, and his sacrificial death on the cross, verses 10 through 12, are at the center of sound doctrine. Jesus and his death on the cross have become our altar, which supersedes and replaces the Jewish altar in the temple. Therefore, we must turn our backs on Judaism and every other religion and hold firmly to Christ and the cross, verse 13. If such faith leads to hardship, rejection, persecution, or even death, keep in mind that we are not living for rewards in this life, but for the reward he has promised us in heaven, verse 14. Now, in the days ahead, we'll look at these verses uh, in a lot more detail. I know next week when we look at verse 8, uh, he, Jesus the same yesterday and today and, and forever. That's all we're going to look at next week. So we're going to be a number of more weeks in Hebrews chapter 13, finishing up this book. Uh, but tonight we're going to look at verses 7 and 17. But, but Cole, Stephen Cole, I think, nails the, the context of this whole thing um, and, and admonishing uh, these Jewish Believers and professing believers, if you will, them to come to true faith, but don't go back to uh, a religious system. Come on to uh, the Messiah himself. So verse 7, and, and that comes, by the way, from the antidote to false teaching, uh, which was uh, an article he wrote in 2005, Stephen Cole wrote. Verse 7 says this, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, of their lifestyle, of their walk with the Lord. Now, there's a number of things within here that we need to look at and we will look at that is to, telling us to remember them <coughs> which have the rule over you, who have in the past, spoken unto you the word of God. So these are, these are past leaders that have influenced these people by speaking the word of God. But prior to getting into these individuals, then moving on to verse 17, I want us to briefly to consider uh, a few things about leadership. Um, because especially as we get into verse 17, it's going to talk about submission, uh, submitting to leaders. Now that is, and that has been abused, I guess, in the same way, like uh, uh, women submit yourselves to your husband. That's been abused through the years as well uh, on the part of men, or it has not always. Um, well, same here. Um, for example, I remember back in, oh, it probably started maybe the 70s, could have started in the 60s, uh, but when I was saved, I was saved in... Uh, Southern Florida. I was saved in Fort Lauderdale. And back then there was Derek Prince and uh, a couple of those, I forget some of the others, Derek Prince. They were located in Fort Lauderdale, but they started uh, the shepherding movement. Anybody familiar with the shepherding movement? Derek Prince and I think Lloyd Mumford, if I, that name is correct. Anybody? anybody no, no, no. They're all, some of you kind of, you know. Anyway, this was an extreme uh, view of leadership. And, and 
I wasn't a fan of Derek Prince anyways, charismatic, Pentecostal, that thing. But anyway, uh, it, it got spread throughout the country to one degree or another. And I gather since then, Prince and Mumford, some of them have repented and recognized error. But this was extreme leadership submission, that uh, you were put under a leader in this movement, and he literally controlled your life. Uh, what job you would have, who, would, who you would marry, uh, if you could go on vacation, where you would go on vacation. I mean, this was just total. It's, it's everything that Jim Jones did minus the Kool-Aid. Um, so, you know, when you think, of, remember Jim Jones and the Colton, what was it, Ghana or, or Ghana that they went to and 700 or 900 people, Guyana, and drank the Kool-Aid and died and, you know. Well, this was, a, but this was under the umbrella of the evangelical world. Um, that's not biblical submission. It's not submission to leadership, so we want to look at that. And there's been, been, been others that have been really abused. Uh, I, I, Dan shared with me this past week, there was a book, I guess, written. Was it Bad Baptist Pastors? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's not just Baptists that have bad pastors. Um, you know, but... Baptists, sometimes you, you know, they become little um, dictators. You know. um, and this whole book, I didn't order the book, Dan. If you get the book, I'll read it then. But anyway, um, I, I remember years ago, um, remember Jack Hiles? You know, a lot of you know Jack Hiles. Well, Jack Hiles had lots of problems. Um, but he preached a message, um, I, I forget it was titled, are you a hundred percenter or something like that? You had to be a hundred percent surrendered to Jack Hiles as your leader, as your pastor, no matter what he did. And, and he had a lot of, lot of issues in his life without even going into detail there. Well, we surrender to leadership or we submit to leadership when they're godly. So we, we need to understand that. Um, this is not a blanket thing where no matter what the leader did, do, does, you follow him. So what are some of the, some of the characteristics or biblical features of, of a leader? Um, and some of these would also be for all of us as well. But number one, God is not looking for kings. God is not looking for presidents. He's not looking for CEOs. Uh, God is looking for servants. Um, and... A leader, first and foremost, should be a servant. In Mark 10, 42 through 45, Jesus called to them and saith unto them, You know they that which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship, rulership over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. Whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Uh, Jesus humbled himself and became a servant. And when you look at the Gospel of Mark, that, that book, uh, that's, that's the main theme of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is a servant. He came as a servant. He humbled himself. 
all of us as followers of the Lord should have a servant attitude. But certainly leaders should. Pastors, associate pastors, whatever branch of leadership, mission leaders, whatever the case, there should be that servant attitude first and foremost. You're not in it for yourself. You're in it for to serve others. Uh, secondly, with, with leadership, there should be shared oversight. Um, if there's not shared oversight, then you, then you have a, a dictatorial type of rule and reign, and then that's not good at all. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders, notice, not the elder, singular, but let the elders, plural, that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. And so whether you call your rulers or, or leaders in a church elders or, past, uh, or, or pastors or uh, deacons, if you want to put it in that regard, um, and, and I don't want to get into church polity now, but there, there are basically, two, church polity is church government. And there's basically two models of government that you'll find in the Christian world. You have elder rule, and you have pastor-led congregational rule. Uh, generally speaking, Baptist churches are the second model, pastor-led congregation rule. Uh, Presbyterian churches, for example, would be elder rule. A lot of Bible churches are elder rule. Um, I don't want to go down this road too much. Uh, what you need to be careful of is that the pastor doesn't become a little ruler uh, and everybody uh, just acquiesces to what he wants. He, there should be that give and take that he is comfortable enough to receive uh, input, critique, criticism within the body of rulers, deacons if you call them that, or elders or whatever, and that should be true in elder rule uh, as well. Um, there's a, I'm not, I don't want There's a very well-known pastor in Southern California. And uh, I worked with a man who was uh, on the elder board of this church of this very well-known man in Southern California who eventually got left the elder board. Uh, good, good, good conditions. But uh, he told me more than once, he says, what this man wants, this man gets. What this man doesn't want, doesn't happen in the church. And essentially, you have the same type of thing when it comes to a, uh, past, uh, a, a pastoral-led or a pastor-led congregational rule. Um, the senior pastor is the spearhead of the ministry, and if he's godly and walking with the Lord, what he wants, generally he gets. What he doesn't want, he doesn't get, that type of thing. I have been in churches with congregational and elder rule, and I find it, they both come out of the wash the same way. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, um, there's, there's, there's safety in numbers, in leadership. You don't want a one-man ship. You want input from, uh, and that's true. Here at Jewish Awareness Ministries, this is a board. That anything of, of, of major, you know, if, if 
if we have to order uh, envelopes, I don't run that by the board. Uh, you know, I can get by with ordering envelopes. But if there's something major that has to be done, uh, that is all run by the board and board approval, that type of thing. Uh, and then so, anyway, shared oversight. Uh, there also is a, it, it, there's a non-clerical structure with leaders. Leaders are no better, uh, maybe better is not the word, they should be better in their walk with the Lord than the average Christian in the pew, uh, but they're no more important, uh, they're no better in their, in their position in Christ uh, than anybody else in the church. There is no hierarchy, there's no clerical hierarchy or structure in a church. Um, there's no division between clergy and laity, in other words. Uh, the church at Pergamos, Revelation 2.15. So, has thou also them which hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate? Well, what are the, what's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Um, this comes from Bible study tools, and, and here's what, how they define it. Uh, the meaning of the Greek is rulers of the people. The meaning may imply that this was an attempt to divide and make an unnatural distinction between the clergy and laity, creating a division in which the clergy exercised rulership over the laity. Certainly elders have the biblical authority to determine the policy of the local church, but the authority described here probably went much further than the issues in the local church and may have extended to the personal lives of the members. Now, in the Christian world today, think of one religious group, denomination, that would be, have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Catholics, yeah. Where the clergy is elevated above the laity. Um, and that is not biblical whatsoever. So there's no clerical structure, biblically speaking. The pastor is, is no better than any other member of that church. He just has a different function. That's all. Uh, we all have different gifts, and the man who's been called to, to, to teach and preach the word, uh, he's not better than any individual uh, member of the church. Uh, some of the scriptural qualifications, well, there has to be moral and spiritual integrity. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, we're not going to read these verses in their entirety. A bishop, that means an elder, a pastor, that's what it's talking about, uh, then must be blameless. So there has to be moral integrity, there has to be spiritual integrity in the life of the, uh, the leader. Uh, there has to be a willingness. Somebody shouldn't be roped into a leadership position. Uh, talking to the elders, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, <coughs> not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, not for money, but of a ready mind. Um, so you've got to feed the flock of God, but you're not constrained to do it. You have to have a desire to do it. You have to be willing to serve and willing to do it. And you're not doing it for the riches that you might get out of it the monies that you get out of it, the filthy lucre. Um, you know, I don't know if you're, in, in the last week or so, um, I think it's Kenneth Copeland's been in the news uh, because he has, his, he has three jets. Um, you know, and he's justifying why he needs three jets. 
Uh, you shouldn't have one jet, let alone three jets. Um, filthy lucre. Um, you know, but he and his ilk will get their due one day, I'm sure of that. So there are spiritual qualifications that you have, and, and we can spend a long time on all of this and get into more uh, as well. But then leadership is male. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2.8 through 3.13, uh, a bishop then must be blameless. It goes on, the husband, the husband of one wife. Not the wife of one husband, the husband of one wife. So God has ordained that leadership in, in the church, in the Christian world, will be male. Uh, there's no biblical reason, justification, for female pastors. Um, I know they're around. Um, we've got a very well-known one over at Providence Baptist Church. Um, I don't think she's the senior pastor. Uh, uh, Ann Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's daughter, but she's a pastor on the staff there, and they call her pastor. Uh, there's no justification for that whatsoever. Um, and you know, the argument usually, you know, the egalitarianism that's swept into the Christian world that comes from the secular world. Uh, well, you know, Paul was uh, he was a misogynist. He was the Donald Trump of his day. You know that type of thing. Um, and, and this was archaic, and it's really not for today, and yada, 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 and let's get with the times, and we're just a lot more progressive than Paul was, and, you know, and so, you know, obviously we can have male and female lead. No, the Bible's the Bible. It's the Word of God. It's an eternal book, uh, male leadership. So you want male leadership because God says to have male leadership. So th those are just some of the things, and, and some of the more, they're all important. But morally, spiritually, uh, you know, integrity in their life, uh, humble servant attitude, not lording it over the flock, that type of thing. And we'll look at some of those um, verses. But there are three things, uh, if you turn the page over, three things about these leaders that we're told about. Um, they were, or are, because we are going to get into current leaders in verse 17, but they were rulers over you. Now, look at 1 Peter chapter 5. It's down here on the second page. <clears throat> the elders which are among you I exhort, who also am an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being an example to the flock. Now, there's, there's a lot in this passage, but what I want to focus in on and what we're considering here is the biblical basis for leadership or rulership is, again, to be a servant. Verse 3, not being lords over God's heritage. We have no right to boss anybody around. Uh, now, it's, 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 it's one thing if you're the pastor, senior pastor of a church and you have a staff of whatever, 10, 15, 5, 2, 20, and they work under you, then he has the right as their employee, as their uh, boss in that situation, uh, to parcel out their jobs and what's required, that type of thing. 
But this is talking about the flock. This is talking about believers and the leadership. And we are not to lord it over someone. Uh, a pastor is not to lord it over the flock. He, he can exhort. He can rebuke. He can challenge, uh, which would be exhortation. Uh, but he has no right to say, you have to do this. It might be better for you to do it, and he can exhort you to do it, but we do not have that right uh, as a leader to lord it over. We're, li we're to live as examples. Um, I've never wanted to be a pastor. I've been in Jewish missions for 40-plus years. Thank God I've never been a pastor. Uh, you know, um, I, I just never had a desire. God's not called me to that. Uh, but it's not an easy, um, you know, a lot of people think, well, being a pastor, well, you're with Christians all day, and you have you know, devotions two times a week, and you pray, and yada, yada. Let me tell you, ministry is, 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 can be vicious. Um, so, and, and I'm not talking about the wolves outside. I'm talking about the, uh, the, the lambs, the, the you know, uh, the, the, you know, inside. Um, so, um, anyway, uh, and we all know stories. If we've been in the Christian world long enough, we all know stories. Um, but ultimately, and, and that's where this whole thing is going in Hebrews, what we're looking at. You know, we, do ha we have leaders. We, do, we need to respect them, godly leaders, yada, yada, yada. But ultimately, it comes down to Jesus. He, that's verse 8, he is the same yesterday today and forever. And even though we need to ultimately submit to our, to our lead, to godly leaders, our focus is always on the Lord. There's, there's never, there should never be anything your pastor has done that should make you abandon the local church. Maybe that local church. Maybe he's taken it bad and you need to leave. But that doesn't mean you abandon the local church and you don't, you stop going to church. And if your focus is on the Lord, it won't happen. Um, I know Cheryl and I have been through our battles in local churches with bad pastors. Um, and uh, I can tell you stories, but uh, I know you want to hear all the stories, I know. But we're not, I'm not going to tell you the stories. Um, so, oh, <laughs> I'll never forget. We were in a big church. It was kind of a big church. Is 1,200 a big church? It's a good size. In California, the pastor was a louse. By the way, he has since repented and recognized his sins and, and repented. Uh, to a, not to me, but I'm, I'm no longer there. But that's fine because he's repented to a friend. But anyway, um, I was called six, seven years ago, and I would, you know, because this church that was 1,200 because of what this pastor did ended up down to about 150 people. And ultimately, this was five years ago when this guy called me, who's a friend in the church. Ultimately, the church went down to 20 people. But there, was a, there happened, to be a, happened to be a Jewish believer who knew my friend. He talked to the friend. And, he had, and I, maybe I told you this story. But he, he, had, he had somehow thought that Mark Robinson had prayed uh, the curse of Ichabod over the church, and that's why it was being destroyed. And so he said, you know Mark Robinson, don't you? And he did. This was a friend who had supported us for a while. So he called me 
out of the blue, I hadn't talked to this guy for years, and he said, this guy, he, he said, I got to call you. He said, he's convinced that you prayed the curse of Ichabod. Do you know what Ichabod is? The glory of the Lord has departed. And so he, so he, he thought I had prayed that, that, that the Spirit of God had dep would depart from the church, and that's why it was empty. It was just headed to destruction. Um, not physically, but spiritually. It was, you know. I laughed. Number one, I'd never pray that for over a church. Number two, I didn't pray that for the, over that church. But, the, but John, my friend, was out of me. He said, but I've got to go back and report to this guy. You've got to remove the curse. I said, I didn't put a curse on it to begin with. He said, well, that's all right. Pray anyway and remove the curse. I said, oh, I'll pray, but I didn't put a curse on this. So I pray. Um, and then the church went down to 20 over the next three or four years. Uh, didn't work out too well. Um, anyway, this was a, the church was a mess. Um, I'll just leave it. I, I just thought it was the curse of Ichabod. So anyway, there's no curse of Ichabod that anybody can pray over anything. Anyway, I just thought it was funny. Um, so don't be, not to be lords over, you know, so, so they were rulers over them. But secondly, notice what they have done. This is based on verse 7 uh, on, on the front of your page. Remember them which have rule over you. So they're, 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 they're the rulers. Then who have spoken unto you the word of God. Um, and this is such a uh, very, very uh, important thing. Um, and... Uh, you know, even before I go down here, let me see. I think I'm, um, that's why i got to get back. Number, point number two, they have faithfully spoken the word of God. First uh, Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the rulers, rulers that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Doctrine is truth, teaching. For the scripture says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. So a major part of ruling well is teaching the word of God. Teaching doctrine. Now tragically in the world today, that's, that's not the case, uh, unfortunately. But there, there's no more important thing that a leader, a pastor, a ministry leader can do than teach the Word of God. Stephen Cole, again, I refer back to his sermon, and he wrote this, or the, his article. It may have been a sermon, too. Uh, These men spoke the Word of God to the Hebrews. God's Word is the only source for sound teaching. Yet we live in a day when very few pastors devote themselves to teaching God's word in a systematic way. Many evangelical churches, in an attempt to reach the unchurched seekers, have abandoned teaching through the Bible verse by verse for fear that some of the difficult doctrines may offend people. They aim the church service at giving the customers what they want, topical, topical messages on how to have a happy life. They avoid talking about sin or judgment or anything controversial. In many cases, their messages could have come out of Reader's Digest rather than the Bible. 
You should evaluate any teaching by the criteria. Does it explain the text of Scripture in its context and apply it to my life? And the evangelical world, tragically, is inundated today with just these type of leaders, these type of pastors, these type of churches, where they uh, cater to the customer. And uh, tragically, they're the biggest churches, you know. Um, people don't want to hear the Word of God uh, anymore. But that does not negate the responsibility of the leader, the pastor, of preaching the Word of God. And the very first thing in, in looking for a church, I would submit to you when you do look for a church, whenever that might be, is to find out what they believe and if the pastor preaches the Bible. And, pri and preferably verse by verse. Now, it's not wrong to have topical messages and, and within, a, within the context of a, of a passage, you could have a, uh, a series on something because there might be some kind of issue that is brought up in a text that takes more than one message to develop. What about the millennial kingdom? I mean, you could talk for weeks on the millennial kingdom. And you could talk about weeks for weeks on, on salvation. What is salvation? You know, and, and you can go on down the line. So in and of itself, topical is not wrong. Um, but there's a lot of churches that their whole, the whole diet is topical messages. I've never pastored a church, as I said, never want to pastor a church. I've been in churches where the pastor always preached topically. And oftentimes he was preaching against something that happened that week that got him upset that from a church member or somebody else. I couldn't teach topically. I'd run out of topics. <laughs> you know, I, would, you know I, I would, in the third week, I would, I would resign and go on to my next church. And in three weeks, I'd resign and go on. Yeah, because I wouldn't have that many topics. Anyway, be that as it may. They faithfully spoke the word of God. And, and we've emphasized this before. It is so important. Teaching the word of God in context. And a good leader, if they're ruling well, they will labor in communicating the word of God, teaching what is true. And that's true in, in, in any ministry. I hope it's true here. Um, you know, we've had lots of people come through this Bible study in years. We've had people from all kinds of different backgrounds, religious backgrounds. Um, a lot of them don't come back. You know, because sooner or later, I'm going to offend them, or the Word of God will offend them. And I, you know, we've had people get upset at me. Uh, lots of them. It doesn't bother me. I've always said, if you think I'm wrong. I'll meet with you. You can show me where I'm wrong, but you better come ready. Better bring your lunch and be ready, prepared to get into the Word of God. Because uh, I'm pretty uh, confident. Well, yeah, I've always said, and, and I, it, this didn't originate with me, by the way, but I believe that what I believe about the Bible is 100% correct. Boy, that's pretty arrogant. I mean, you believe that everything you believe is correct? Well, do you think I'm going to believe that something I believe is wrong and then teach it? That's foolish. Now, there are times that I come and say, whoa, I've been wrong in this. 
So I wasn't 100% correct. So I got to change my position on this and then believe this. And then I'm 100% correct again until I'm shown that I'm wrong in something. So that's, that's, that's not a, it, it's, I heard that from a, that famous pastor in California, by the way. But anyway, uh, yeah, he's the one I first heard that from. So I, I liked it, so, so I picked it up from him. Um, and I can tell you areas that I've changed through the years because I did more study. I was challenged by somebody. Um, okay. Calvinism. Don't tell me if you're a Calvinist. It doesn't matter. Yes, it does matter. But don't tell me. I used to be a Calvinist. Although I was a squeamish Calvinist. I couldn't, you know, really, really couldn't buy into it totally. But back in the early 90s, um, in, in San Diego, where I was challenged by a pastor. He would have me down twice to preach a year. And he was, he was down about 45 minutes or so from where we lived. Uh, so I would go down there and spend the day and preach that night. And so he, so, and he did this for, I don't know, four or five, six years. At least twice a year had me down there to preach. So he started challenging me, especially about Calvin. Well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And, 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 I said, and, and I didn't recoil. I said, well, let me think about it. Let me study it. And he gave me, you know, you know, I wanted to be a Berean, you know, should hear the word of God with, you know, with all readiness of mind, what they, what they teach, but then what? Go home and search the scriptures, whether it be true. If you're not willing to do that, there's something wrong with your spiritual walk. If you're not willing to examine your position, it may be right, but don't be afraid of examining it. So he challenged me, and after uh, three, four, five, six, I don't know what time, I said, you know, Calvinism is wrong. Every point of Calvinism is wrong. And so I did a, I don't think I was ever a five-point Calvinist. Some of you may not know what a Calvinist is. Um, even Calvin wasn't a Calvinist, by the way, of today's definition, but that's a whole other story. Um, but, but anyway, and there's others. We, we've had other doctrines that have been taught here in the Word of God in context. But, you know, we had one gal here, Pentecostal. She loved the Bible study. But when we were in Isaiah, teaching through Isaiah, and in Isaiah chapter 28, and Isaiah chapter 28, with tongues of other men, uh, other nations, and yeah, judgment will come. I'm, I'm paraphrasing this now. Uh, that is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about tongues. And the only place that we have the purpose for tongues in the Bible is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Tongues are for our sign. Not for those who believe, but to those who believe not. So biblically, you, and you'll check it out, every time tongues were used, unbelievers were present. And every time tongues were used in the Bible, it was always unbelieving Jews who were present. Because the context of Isaiah 28, that God would judge Israel by bringing in a nation, Assyria, of another language, of another tongue, and judging Israel... And tongues, biblically, were a sign of judgment to the Jewish people, unbelieving Jews. And 
70 AD, that judgment came, and the nation was destroyed. And after 70 AD, you have no mention in the Word of God of any tongue, of any speaking in tongues. Well, we got into detail, looked at all the verses, and that lady afterwards said to me, you know, I agree with you. She said, but I can't accept what you say. She said, because if I do, I'll be ostracized from my family, from my church. I gotta leave. She left, never came back. That's sad. That's sad. So we've had others like that. So remember we had the guy there, he was sitting right over there. And uh, he was a covenant theology. And he didn't like my teaching on Israel and all that. And he was not nice. He was sitting right at, right at the end there. Remember that? Some of you were here. Some of you weren't here. A lot of you weren't here. And, and, I, and, and I've always said, this Bible is open for everybody, but it's not for everybody. And I said, I told him, I said, this Bible is open to everybody, but it's not for everybody. I said, this Bible study is not for you. You don't want to learn. You want to argue. He believed in replacement theology and so on. Um, Anyway, you've got to teach the Word of God. And the pastor is, is looking over the, over the flock, and, and we'll get into that in verse 17 as we go. You've got to teach the Word of God. Then, thirdly, uh, in, in verse 7, if you go back there, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, their Lord, whose faith follow, their lifestyle needs to... Um, imitate what they preach. They have to have a life of integrity, of um, honesty, of scriptural, doctrinal integrity. Um, so they've got to be faithful in their lifestyle. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3 says this, 6-9. through nine. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly, not after the tradition which he received of us, for yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor, travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. And leaders need to live a life of integrity, spiritually, in, in every way, morally, ethically, as an example for people to follow. And if your leader is not doing that, don't follow him. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. In other words, if I'm walking with the Lord, if I'm following what the Messiah, what Jesus teaches, and walking with him, then you follow me. But if I'm not following him, don't follow me, is, is what... Paul is saying, Philippians 3, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as you have has us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Paul says, follow me. As I honor, glorify the Lord, follow me. 
But be careful because there are those out there <coughs> who are not following Christ. They are doing it for their own gain. They are doing it to fill their own belly. Uh, who want the glory. Don't follow them. Hebrews 6.12, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So our, our, our leaders, need, we're not looking for perfect leaders. You know, nobody's perfect. Nobody, even, even the best pastor is going gonna, is gonna to make a mistake. So we're not looking for perfection, but we are looking for a consistent lifestyle of integrity, ethics, godliness, correct doctrine. That's a must for leaders. Three things about these leaders. And he's talking about past leaders now. He's talking about the past. You know, there's a number of people, they, re they recommend one of the best things you can do is get a biography of a former, of a past man of God, woman of God, and read it and be challenged by it. Maybe a George Mueller, maybe a Hudson Taylor, uh, whatever the case might be. Uh, because you can be challenged by that leader and their walk with the Lord. And every now and then it probably doesn't hurt to do that, uh, to be, because that's what this verse is saying. Remember those previously who were your leaders, who were godly individuals who taught the word of God and lived the life. Remember them, because they had a major impact in your life. And then go over to the next place. So believers are reminded then, Three basic responsibilities in regards to rulers. Remember, follow, consider the end of their conversation. Remember is in the present imperative. In other words, uh, is, to, is to be constantly remembering. Present imperative is, imperative is a command. Uh, when, when you look at a passage of scripture, is it indicative or is it imperative? Indicative states a fact. Imperative gives a command. You know, one of the, um, to me, one of the, the, the best illustrations of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I talked about tongues earlier in 12, 13, and, and, and 14. It's in chapter 14 where Isaiah 28 is quoted. Uh, but in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 13, 31, it says this, but covet earnestly the best gifts. Now, we don't even need to read the, the, the latter part of verse 31. If you, if you know what preceded in chapter 12, what is happening is the Corinthians were being rebuked because they were coveting what they thought were the best gifts, the showy gifts the speaking in tongues and that type of thing. And they were being rebuked over and over in the first pretty much 30 verses of this chapter about not seeking what they thought were the best gifts. God gives the gifts. You don't have a choice. God gives to severally uh, as he wills, not as you choose, and so on. So when you get down to verse 31 then, and it says, but covet earnestly the best gifts. 
if you take that as, as an imperative, a command, it would contradict everything that precedes it. Because the entire chapter up to this set point is condemning them, rebuking them, <coughs> for coveting what they thought were the best gifts. So what 31 is, it's not an imperative, it's an indicative. And it's continuing the rebuke. But you covet the best gifts. <coughs> He's not telling you to covet the best gifts. He's rebuking them for coveting what they thought were the best gifts. And then he says, I'm going to show you a better way. I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And that more excellent way is love. So whether you understand it as indicative or imperative has a major influence on how you understand that verse. And I would submit to you that it has to be understood as a factual statement, not as a command. You are coveting the best gifts. That's wrong. I'm going to show you a better way. Well, here when we come to a remember, it's in the present imperative. You've got to keep, you, remember those people who had an influence in your life. They could be dead. Uh, they could be, you know, but, but remember them as an example for you and their life and their teaching and that type of thing. Don't look at the negatives out there. Don't look at the Benny Hens. Don't look at the, well, hopefully nobody's looking at them anyway. Don't look at that pastor of a good church who didn't, wasn't such a good pastor and really got you upset. Uh, no, look back at, at godly men. Uh, and then, to follow. We are to imitate what they were. We are to follow the example of those godly leaders. Uh, because they ran the race, and they completed the race. That's what the last part of verse 7 says. Considering the end of their conversation. Literally, considering is to look attentively to consider well, to observe accurately. And the end of their conversation is the end of their life, as it were. We're to look at the lives of leaders, and importantly, how they ended their life. Did they run the race to the end? Did they run it well? Did they run it ethically? Were they morally and spiritually above board? And if those kind of people look back and remind yourself, I want to be like them. I want to be like Paul. I want to be like John, the Apostle John. Or, or, or I want to be a George Mueller, or, or whatever the case might be. And so we're commanded to remember and to look back. Um, considering the end of their life, that they did finish the course. I... I Remember when we were in, in California, the pastor of um, in Escondido, um, Strauss. What was his name? Emmanuel Emmanuel Faith Community Church. Uh, it was Lehman Strauss's son, I believe it was Richard Strauss, I think. Anyway, uh, it was a big church, three, four, five, six thousand people. I don't know how many, but uh, towards the end of his ministry there, he he got cancer. And I don't remember what kind, but it was terminal. Uh, and when he announced it to the congregation, he said, I'm not stepping down. I'm going to preach as long as I'm physically able to preach. And by the grace of God, I'm going to teach you how to die. 
And he did. And he, and he honored the Lord, and he taught the word, and he lived his life to the time he, up to the time he died. And he was, he, what he was saying is, my uh, ending the race is just as important as the beginning and the middle, and I want you to look at my life, because by the grace of God, I'm going to teach you how to die. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to wallow in pity. This is what God has brought me to, and I will glorify him to the end. And he did that to the day he died, which was, I don't know how many years ago he died. That's what it's saying here. Look at those people. Well, in verse 17, it says this, and this is current leaders. Obviously, we, don't, we can't obey, submit to people who are dead. Uh, that would be difficult. Um, I'm not going to go down that road. You know, some of, the, some of these, don't ever get involved with the word faith movement. Please don't ever get involved. You know, the Benny Hens and the Kenneth Copelands and the Morris Cirillos and yada, yada, yada. I don't remember which guy it was, but, you know, one of the, uh, the founders of this crazy movement was Amy Semple McPherson. Um, so... If that's George, tell him we will talk to him about the Lord. So, um, um, but she, she, she was a wretched woman. She was, a, she was an alcoholic. She was a philanderer. She was, oh, you know, okay. You know. Anyway, but some of, the, some of these um, followers of her would literally go to her grave and throw themselves prostrate on her grave thinking that there's going to be some kind of power that would come from her bones that God would give to them to continue the ministry that she started. I mean, she, when you're dead, you're dead. So uh, we can remember godly leaders, but we don't, we don't let them lord, lord us over. You know, that's not the type of thing that we're talking about here. Um, verse 17 current leaders. Obey them that have rule over you. This is submission. Obey them that have rule over you. Submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. Now submission is an ugly word in our society, in our culture, but it's a biblical truth. And when you think about it, in every area of life, everywhere, we've got to submit. If you have a job, you have to submit to the boss. If you're the boss, you have to submit to the IRS, or they're going to close your company down, uh, or whatever regulatory agency is over you. Uh, we all submit. In, in, if, you're, if you're in school, you have to submit to your teacher. Uh, yeah, you can go on down the line. Um, if you're playing on a sports team, you better submit to the coach. If you don't, he's going to put you on the bench, and you won't be playing. So there's submission in, in, in just every area of life. Uh, and, and in the local church, <coughs> there is submission. Um, obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves. Now, the first paragraph here. We are commanded to obey and submit to those presently in authority over us. The context of this verse is 
church leaders. Perhaps the admonition is given because of some of them forsaking the local church. Remember, uh, back in, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, um, and when we, this is, I don't know when we were back in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, but in verse 25, not forsaking the assemble of our, assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So one of the problems that these new believers had, Jewish believers, was assembling together. And the admonition is, is don't forsake the assembling. It's so important to gather together uh, as a fellowship. But there are those who are forsaking the, the fellowship. And so possibly this, this, this is given of submission that you might attend church, that you should attend church that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Because in the culture here and, and, and what was happening, they were forsaking the assembling of them, themselves together. So they needed to be reminded that they should obey and submit to godly leaders. How are you going to <coughs> obey and submit to a godly leader if you're not attending the church? Not easy, is it? No, obviously you've got to be there uh, to do that. So very possible this is said because of the problem of what was uh, addressed in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Expositor's Bible commentary says this. Having exhorted the Hebrews to keep in mind their former rulers and adhere to their teaching, the writer now admonishes them, probably in view of a certain mutinous and separatist spirit. Verse we just looked at. Encouraged by their reception of strange doctrines, to obey their present leaders and yield themselves trustfully to their teaching. An admonition which, as Weiss remarks, shows that these teachers held the same views as the writer. So they held the same view as the writer of Hebrews, whoever you might want to consider the writer is, but he was doctrinally correct. The teachers were. And you need to get back in fellowship. You need to have correct doctrine because these were... Uh, warning passages and all of that uh, because they were separatists. They weren't doing that. They were in danger of going back to, to Judaism and that type of thing. Um, Precept Austin said this, obviously these commands do not call for obedience in situations where the leader is not leading biblically. We saw this kind of blind obedience to Jim Jones who orchestrated the murder of 909 followers by ordering them to commit mass suicide by drinking poison flavor aid, Kool-Aid. Neither does this passage provide any justification for authoritarian churches, like some of the contemporary house churches, <coughs> whose members submit virtually every decision of their lives to their elders. So this is not a blanket command that even if the church, the pastor of the church, the elders of the church are ungodly, not ruling well, then you uh, still submit. No. First Timothy, First Thessalonians, First Timothy, excuse me, 5.19.21 tells us what we do. Against an, un, against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin, the leader, rebuke before all that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, 
that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. If a leader sins, that doesn't mean one sin, and, uh, but if it's a major issue, it's a moral issue, it's an ethical issue, it's a major doctrinal issue, uh, there has to be at least two or three people that will address that leader. To rebuke that leader, because the leader, the pastor, is no different than any other member of the church. And church discipline can apply to a pastor just as much as it can apply to any member of that church. Now, it's very difficult because the pastor usually puts men around him. A lot of them too often are yes men. Um, this one church in, in California that we were involved in trying to get it straightened out, I talked to one of the deacons and in this Independent Baptist Church, deacons were elders, same type of thing. And he flat out told me, he said, I know he lies, I know he's immoral, not sexually immoral, unethical. I know he's done things he shouldn't do, but I don't care, he's a good speaker. And because he's a good speaker, I will support him, even though he is unethical and has misused the word of God occasionally, I don't care. Whoa. I said, okay, I'm out of here. I mean, what do you do? You leave. You know, you leave. <clears throat> um, so it's very difficult to get someone like that out. Um, but this is not a blanket command to submit. This is to somebody who is godly, who is servant, who has the requirements we looked at earlier. We obey and submit, 1 Thessalonians 5. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, over you in the Lord, and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. It, 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 a good pastor is worth his weight in gold. <clears throat> he really is. Because there's too many bad pastors out there um, who are trying to build their own kingdom. Um, esteem them very highly uh, as they labor over you. <clears throat> um, because godly leaders watch for our souls. Now what does this imply? One of the most important things that a, a leader should be doing <clears throat> is warning. Is teaching you about the wolves that are out there but probably more importantly, the wolves that are among you. Look what Acts 20, 26 through 31 says. Paul says, wherefore, he's speaking to the, to the elders at Ephesus, the pastors at Ephesus. <clears throat> wherefore, I take you to record this day, I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. There's no hobby horse. He, he taught them the word of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and all the flock <clears throat> over which the Holy Spirit had made you overseers, leaders, elders, to feed the church of God, which he had purchased with his own blood. I've taught you the counsel of God. Feed the church of God. That's the word of God. <clears throat> For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. It's pretty easy to spot the wolves. Wolves don't look like sheep. They have big fangs. You know, they don't have woolly clothing. 
easy to differentiate a wolf from a wolf from a sheep. But then notice verse 30. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. These are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. They're a lot more dangerous than the wolves. I mean, you don't want to be caught dancing with a wolf, obviously. Um, <laughs> can't think of it. Somebody wrote a book years ago called Dancing with the Devils. Um, I always love that title. But anyway, um, you don't want to be caught you know, feeding at the trial with a wolf because ultimately you become lunch. Um, it's easy to spot a wolf. It's a lot more difficult to spot a wolf in sheep's clothing. But they're here. They're in the church. We can see it especially in, in, in the 21st century, the 20th century, and what has happened in all these uh, aberrational movements that we have. And, and it comes from people in the church. You have this big social justice movement that's taking place in evangelical Christianity today. It is non-biblical, and they dress it up in, 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 in good-sounding terms and words. It is non-biblical. What it is, back in the early 1900s, you had the, the modernist, fundamental, fundamentalist um, split and controversy in the Christian world. The modernists were the social justice people of their day. A social gospel. The fundamentalists were, hey, let's just teach the Bible, that type of thing. There's a movement today in, in so-called social justice that is sweeping through the evangelical church that is wrong. It's not biblical. And it's getting the church off of track. We shouldn't be involved in it. There will be men that will arise from our own selves, from our midst, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. <coughs> Therefore, watch and remember, Paul says, that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. They guard our souls. If a pastor is not warning you of, of wrong doctrine out there and wrong movements out there, he, he, he's not fulfilling his, his responsibility to guard our souls. And, and, the, and the main antidote for guarding our souls is properly teaching the Word of God that we will be properly armed. You know, I, I've mentioned this before. You may know what happened in Israel about a year ago. A very well, maybe not very well known, very well to some of us, uh, a teacher in, in a school out there denied the Trinity and denied the deity of Christ um, and just sent a lot of people in turmoil because he was involved in, in, in a, in a in, 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 with Master's Seminary in California. Uh, and after 20 years, he came out and said, I don't believe in the, that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And it just ro roiled, rolled the, uh, a lot of people. Just, why would he do this? You know, he taught us and yada, 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 yeah, that type of thing. Well, there, there People need to be warned about this person, why his teaching is wrong, uh, what he has embraced is wrong. And that's been done. And he has been fired by Master's 
college or seminary, one of them. It's no longer with them. And he's a, he's a heretic. He's a blasphemer, that type of thing. Uh, and that's just about a year ago in Israel. He had lived in Israel for 20 years or so. Um, they watch over our souls. So leaders must give an account. Uh, turn over the back of the page. They must give account uh, of their rule to God. Um, so, you know, the Bible says, you know, don't seek to be a leader or a teacher because you have to give account. So, you know, you, you, it's, we, we, are, we are responsible to God, accountable to God for what we teach. So we need to, we need to submit, obey, they, that they may do it with joy. Not with grief. Third uh, John verse four. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. For what is our hope? This is um, uh, Philippians. For what is our hope uh, or joy or crown of rejoicing? Or not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are a glory of joy. And there's no greater joy than that people come to the Lord, people walk with the Lord, people serve the Lord that uh, somebody in ministry has than to see that happen. But they are to do it in joy, not in grief. If they're grieving because of what's been happening, it's not profitable for us. Grieving uh, or grief there, stenazo, literally refers to the utter utterances of a person who's caught in a dreadful situation and has no immediate prospect of deliverance. For example, it's used in Acts chapter 7, 34. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send the Indeed. Their groaning, they were afflicted. They were grieving in Egypt, the Jewish people. And they didn't think there was any way out. But this was a continual process. There was no deliverance. Well, God did deliver them through Moses. But it's that type of grief. Don't cause that type of grief for your leader where he is so grieved about what's happening uh, that, that an individual or numbers of members are causing that he is just can't see a way out of the predicament. Don't you be the cause of that. If he's a godly leader. If he's sinning, if he's not, that's a whole other ballgame. So, so we are commanded to remember leaders in the past who taught the word of God, who lived the life as examples, and our current leaders, same thing, who teach us the word of God, they guard our souls, who live the life, and what we are to submit and obey them and don't cause them grief because that doesn't help them or you. Very practical admonitions in Hebrews as we march towards the end of this book. Any thoughts? difference between envy and jealousy. I don't know if there is a difference. If you envy, as you want something. If you're jealous, you would... Uh-huh. Yeah, well, but with God, it's, it's, it, in God's character, that's not sin. In other words, God wants what he deserves, which is our worship, and he's saying that to Israel, who's following false gods. I'm a jealous God. 
I brought you into existence. You are the chosen people, as it were. And so I'm jealous. I'm the only one that you should follow. And it's for their betterment. Uh, but that's not sin when he's a jealous God. When we're jealous, I mean, we, we, if you want to use it in a positive, we can be jealous for God's glory. Then that would not be a sin. In other words, I'm jealous. I want God to get all the glory in this and nobody else. And I'm jealous for his glory. But Depending on the context. Normally when we use jealous, it's in the negative context. And, and we're jealous because, hey, why does he have that Mercedes and I'm driving a Volkswagen? You can be envious. It can be the same thing. It can be the same thing. So. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. And uh, Lord, uh, help us to uh, support uh, the godly leaders, our pastor, who, uh, whoever it might be, Lord, who, uh, who glorifies you, who teaches the word of God. Lord, uh, we are to uh, honor and esteem them, as you said. Uh, so, Lord, help us to be very careful in how we respond to leadership. So, Lord, we commit this to you. We uh, ask your blessings on our fellowship and on uh, the, the food that we're going to partake of. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Shalom.